Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. One of the biggest challenges facing leaders today, especially in the workplace, is the workplace. It's just not what it used to be. In the last 18 months, we've seen, for example, concepts such as work from home, remote workforce, or even Zoom thrust upon large swathes of the workforce who were, in many cases, unprepared. According to the latest research from Gallup, only 36% of employees feel engaged in their workplace. That's a big problem, according to my next guest on the XL podcast, Paul Glover, the No BS Executive Performance Coach. Low levels of engagement account for 450 to 550 billion dollars of loss or cost to businesses in the US alone every single year. It's no wonder Microsoft is talking about the great resignation, predicting 41% attrition rates as a result of the pandemic. According to Paul, this is not a crisis that we can manage our way out of. It's one that we have to lead, and we don't lead with data. Drawing on years of his experience as a courtroom trial lawyer, influencing and shaping outcomes of jury decisions, Paul will, in this podcast, hopefully give us some insight into how do we influence and lead people, just as we would influence and lead inside the courtroom. This starts with the fundamental search for the truth and that means having those difficult conversations inside your organization that means exposing yourself and being vulnerable to feedback it's so easy to talk about vulnerability and authenticity but being vulnerable and being authentic is something very different as Paul will remind us that radical transparency is often the biggest BS in the business world today That's what you're going to get in this podcast episode with Paul Glover. No holds barred. Telling it as it is, a little bit combative, but that's how he used to play in the courtroom and that's how he takes it to the boardroom as well. So if you really want to hear the truth about your business and where leadership needs to address its blind spots, enjoy this podcast episode with Paul Glover. This is the XL Podcast. There was a great article that came out recently detailing this story that's happened with three Netflix execs who went on Slack complaining effectively about Netflix and the culture and the leadership there. And this is a an organization that published a 127 slide deck about their radical candor, their radical transparency. They are the darling of Wall Street in many respects. And yet here we have three leaders openly discussing about the culture and the outcome of this as well gives us some insights into where we're going with this conversation paul help us understand tell us about this story and why it's important well the story is important because it it is operating off of a fallacy and the fallacy is that any leader can expect radical transparency as a matter of course you can put it down 
in your code of conduct and expect people to do it, to follow it. The reality is that's not how it works. Uh, people are still worried about the repercussions. These three leaders were talking amongst themselves about their leader, their manager, and about the issues that they were having with him. Uh, this was not a uh, an open conversation mm. in front of this guy. And and the, the Netflix code of conduct is you can complain about anything you want as long as you do it in front of the person that you're complaining about. Uh, the reason they were terminated was not the discussion, but that they would not say this in front of their boss. And they were terminated. And that is the fallacy that, unfortunately, too many organizations uh, rest upon and act upon. And that is that they have a, a level of engagement and trust with their employees that is so strong that the threat of retribution for saying what is true out loud is something they don't worry about. That's the fallacy, hmm. is that is that employees don't trust their leadership and they aren't engaged. Uh, and, and as we talk about the great resignation, hmm. uh, it depends on what study you want to look at, but any place from 41% to 95% of all employees are considering leaving their jobs after the pandemic. Mm. Well, if you are an engaged employee, that's all what's going on in your life. So what this tells us, if, if, if by the way, they haven't left yet. And, and let, let's be clear about this. My experience is half, half are seriously going to take action. The other half are thinking about it. But that's okay, isn't it? If, if you're telling me that 45% of the American workers leave their current employer, that is a disaster. Mm. You cannot count the billions of dollars this is going to cost American industry as they try to backfill these positions. Well, uh, just, yeah. just they couldn't hire enough HR specialists to do the interviewing. It would, it's insane to think about this as a reality, and yet the fact that it is actually being spoken about and that that studies and surveys are being taken is an indication of how pissed off. The American employee is mm. about their company and their leadership. Yeah, and, there's and, a huge gap here. Right? I mean, the Microsoft oh data says 41% prediction. That's Microsoft's own data. Exactly. And you can imagine the cost to Microsoft where these guys are probably on six-figure salaries. They're probably costing a lot of money to recruit and retain the, the artifacts and the gimmicks that you've got in the office to keep these people happy. Absolutely, it's an extremely expensive cost to them. Well, it is, and and it is, it is, it can be the end of industries as we mm. think about it. Uh, it, it. It is absolutely possible that you will shut down some industries. The, the supply line suffers now because of the pandemic and because of the lack of employees. But every client that I work with is having difficulty with every level of employment throughout their organization. Mm. They can't find people and they can't keep people. There's a bidding war going on right now to draw talent away from the competition. And it's be become a money game. But 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 my my as I speak to my clients about the the power of engagement, it's all about having that level of trust mm. and and allowing empowerment at every level so that the person who is doing the job, doesn't want to leave the job. 
And, and that to me is the indication of how weak the level of engagement and trust is. And mm. Gallup does the annual engagement poll, which shows 34%, the last one, 34% of employees are engaged. Mm. And they celebrated that. Mm. Only 34%. <laughs> well, exactly. To me, the that third. was an insult. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, wait, well, wait a minute. Two-thirds of your workforce is unengaged. And by the way, 17% are actively disengaged. Mm. And I take that to mean something different. The 51% who are not engaged still come to work and do their job. Mm. They don't give you discretionary effort. And they're constantly looking for another job. So they're not engaged. They're not empowered. But they show up. And they do enough work not to get fired. But you're looking for discretionary effort if you want to be a high-performing operation. So, but but okay, uh, let's take a look at that 17% that is actively disengaged. I call them the working dead. Mm. They not only aren't working, but they are they are infecting everybody else with toxicity. In fact, I'll go a little farther than that. There are examples of where sabotage. Mm. is absolutely connected to this 17%. That's how much they hate. Not, not that they're disengaged. They hate their employer. Not enough to sabotage. Enough to convince other employees that this is a toxic environment. And knowing these numbers, Gallup has been doing this survey for 20 plus years. Knowing these numbers, we still struggle with the same thing. Oh my God, who is, are they, is, is leadership deaf? Well, let's I'm, ask that I'm question. Not... <laughs> this is where we got to start. The, the numbers on the table, I mean, the, the scorecard for leadership is not good. The report card shows this is something is fundamentally wrong let's go all the way back to netflix and radical transparency we hear about this radical transparency open culture etc and yet here you have netflix which is seen in many cases as a great example of a modern open workplace i believe netflix was one of the first to pioneer unlimited leave Absolutely. where you could work as much or as actually probably what transpired as little as you liked that they had these cultural um, boundaries which were not existing in sort of traditional companies radical transparency was top of their list of sort of in cultural um values but here we are that you've got three people being fired for it so tell us about radical transparency is it really just lip service of or course. Is, it, is it fundamentally something we need to adopt? Oh, well, should we adopt honesty and truth and, and speaking truth to power? Let's understand what radical transparency actually means. It mm. means that I've got the guts to tell you what I really think. And you are in a position, you've got positional authority over me. And I am supposed to believe that once I tell you what you don't want to hear, mm that you're going to be okay with that and that you're going to actually thank me for the gift of feedback. This is a panacea. It does not exist. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I have not seen it. I, I understand the myth and I understand that this is the way, this is the theory. Someone has to show me that it works mm. because I, I, I look at the, I look at the three uh, Netflix execs and I say, well, maybe you want them to, go to their boss and tell them about these issues. But there's a reason why they didn't. 
rather than fire them for not following this, this rule, how about if you ask them, why wouldn't you do that? Because I already know the answer, just like you do and just like they did. If they were have gone to their boss and told them what they didn't like about his leadership and managerial skill set, at some point he would have gotten even. Mm. And that's why they talk among themselves. So, But you see, the company doesn't want to go to the root cause. They don't want to ask that question. They want to take action because someone violated a stupid rule. Just crazy to me. Uh, you know, it, it is indicative. It is a symptom of the disease. Mm. And and it's uh, in the culture as well, isn't it? You talked uh, about why wouldn't they go to the leader? We've actually had examples of this. Those Wall Street bankers, there was an, uh, an issue, a, sort of a news article a while back about Wall Street bankers going out in public. I think they were Goldman bankers. I'm not sure. Maybe you know this story, Paul, <laughs> that they published a wasn't an expose, but an open letter saying that we're not happy with our working yeah. conditions. And that, that, that is where people actually do speak truth to power. And what happened about those guys? Well, it's it, good that you bring that up because I, I again, I can, you're giving me too many examples Graham, that support my theory. Mm. Uh, certainly 13 of the junior bankers, they're the folks that come in and they are expected to learn their craft. Now, they, they were Goldman Sachs, and they, the 13 of them, put together a slide deck. I think it was over 100 slides, and they presented it to the executives at Goldman. And the crux of the situation was, we are working ourselves to death. We are working 100 hours plus a week. It is destroying our well-being, our mental and physical well-being. And Wall Street, of course, looked at this and said, oh, my God, if we'd only known mm. how, how, how terrible this work, these working conditions are. Uh, instead, uh, what, what the bankers said was, uh, perhaps this isn't the job for you. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't like these working conditions, you don't like these hours, uh, then, then this is probably not your industry. Uh, you should probably seek employment elsewhere. Uh, and by the way, it has nothing to do with pay. We often believe that everybody that gets mm. paid really well is really happy and they will accept the abuse. The Wall Street bankers get more than double their compensation over the average employee at any other executive level, $200,000. And and they weren't happy because at some point, do you want to die for a paycheck? And that's how they felt about this. And yet the response from most of Wall Street was, we're not going to change how we do this. By the way, that's why the Wall Street bankers want their employees back at the office, because their contention is that's where you learn the job. Interesting enough, most of them are going to continue to work remotely. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the commute by helicopter is just a, a terribly crowded and time-consuming way to get to the office versus taking the flooded subway in New York. Hmm. Yeah, roughing it. <laughs> It is. But 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 that is, by the way, that's speaking truth to power and getting the response from power. Mm. And I guarantee you, those 13 junior bankers now have a bullseye on their back. Oh, yeah. They ain't going anywhere. No. And they're going to they, have the office. They're going to have the the desk nearest the door in their place, right? They Run are. The it's a matter out. of time. And they realizing the response. 
they all know that yeah. speaking truth to power has consequences. Yeah. And uh, it does. And the American worker at every level, and I don't care whether it's Netflix or Wall Street, knows this, inherently knows this. Mm. And therefore, it's a joke to talk about this concept. Uh, by the way, I love the concept, but it's not a concept that, that employers are ready Radical to Radical transparency, accept. you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Isn't that how you solve the problems that your organization has? Mm. Oh, wait a minute. You don't think there are any problems. And God forbid that someone actually suggests that your leadership needs improvement. Mm. So the reality is we that, that leadership does not want to face reality, and they do not want to hear from the people who know how to improve the organization, the person who's actually doing the job. Mm. Yeah, because this is myth, isn't there, that we pay, pay you well enough, you can suck it up. If you don't like it, go. And you shouldn't be. And there's also the myth on the other side, I guess the media gets hold of this is that these are well paid employees, and therefore they're whinging, they're complaining. Yes. Right? And so they have no right to complain about their working conditions because they're earning five, six, maybe 10 times an essential worker's wage. You know, look at them whining about earning 200,000 a year. No sympathy. Right. And by the way, if you talk to the guy who's the garbage collector and you said, would you be willing to do that? Well, I, he automatically answers yes. Yeah. Until he has to do it. Yeah. You see, we, we all think that everyone else's job is easy to do. And of course, I would do that for the money. Uh, but the reality is that very quick, you, you learn that money is not what engages people. Mm. It may get them walk in the door, but you cannot engage people with money. Mm. Like I said, you don't get discretionary effort by paying people. What you get is the time you're willing to pay for. And that's yeah. all. Yeah. And and unfortunately, we somehow believe, Americans believe that if we're paying, American companies believe if they're paying enough money, that should be enough engagement. That should buy it. Hmm. Can't buy engagement. It's carrot it's stick, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. a very traditional model of motivating workers. It is. Uh, and they we feel gotten, that, well, maybe there was a time when people were motivated by money because they wanted security more than anything, because they maybe their parents came from a generation of survivors, people mm -hmm. who, you know, knew poverty, who understood what it meant to be old and not have security. But now the younger generation will never experience the kind of hardships that the previous generations have, and therefore their motivators aren't necessarily survival. Or, you know, for them, their lack of means would be lack of an iPhone or lack of Wi-Fi. I mean, they're not going to starve, are they? So their motivators, after a certain amount of money, studies have been done on this, after maybe $65,000 a year or whatever it is, after your basic needs are covered, you know, the rest is all sort of marginal in terms of happiness. It is. And people are asking questions about this now, especially younger generations. They're asking about what's the culture going to be like where I work and mm -hmm. who are the people I'm going to work and importantly, what are the big missions and stories I'm going to work on? How am I going to do something with my time that's of meaning? These well, are the questions people are asking now. Well, not only that, but, but <laughs> you're absolutely correct. And we, the people in charge, old white guys like me, Mm. Thinks that think that those those aspirations are bullshit. <laughs> yeah. We don't say it out loud anymore because we learned that if we do, we get pilloried. So so we don't. But we don't think that's what you need a purpose to work. Mm. Oh my God, you lazy slug! Uh, I'll give you a purpose. I'll give you a job. 
I'll yeah. give you money and and I'm going to tell you what to do because I don't want you to make decisions on your own. Uh, God knows what what would happen if that occurred, because then I guess I would have to find out what am I, what's my purpose. So I, I, I hold on to that power. Hmm. You know, we talk about empowerment. Well, empowerment has to be given. Uh, if you try to take empowerment, it's revolution. It's not, it has nothing yeah. to do. Uh, so you've got to be willing to give people power. You know how rare that is to find someone who has power that's willing to give it up? Mm. Extraordinarily rare. And in the workplace, we still operate off the industrial age model. Yeah. Supervision. That's how we make sure you earn the money we pay you. And by the way, we can't even get beyond as an industry or any industry beyond the concept of results, not time. You see, when you pay people by the hour or a salary, you're not paying them for results. All you're doing is paying them for time. If we can't get beyond that elementary change in mindset about if I can get the results that I want from you, I should be happy. Hmm. It doesn't work. Uh, I can give you a, I'll give you a short story. I was asked to come into a warehouse and the problem was that they were not getting the product onto the trucks in time for the trucks to leave to make the deliveries when the stores opened. And so they asked me to come in and see if I had a solution to that problem. Well, I went to the employees, by the way, it's a union shop. So you could not ask, you couldn't give them any more money. You couldn't, mm. but, but what you could do is give them time off because they were guaranteed 40 hours of work a week, 40 hours of wages. But there was no, there's nothing that said, well, they have to work 40 hours to get it. It was guaranteed. Therefore, they definitely were forced to work 40 hours. I sat down with the union steward and a committee and I said, what would, what would it take for you to be able to get these trucks loaded and out the door on time? And they said, it's impossible. Too much work. Hmm. So we can't do it. We're working as hard as we can work. If we had to lift one more case, we would die. I said, so you really enjoy being in this place for eight hours a day? And of course, <laughs> it was, no, we don't. But that's how long it takes us to do the job. I said, so if I told you if you finish the day's work in six hours and got to go home, you would say, can't do it, not going to go. <laughs> Suddenly, there was a different conversation that took place. And the, the conversation was, well, we need to understand that quality has got to be the same. You can't have more break. I mean, the rules had to be there. They were there. Uh, now, 80% of, the, uh, 80% of the bargaining unit voted to accept the concept of doing that. And management, desperate to make sure that the uh, supplies arrived on time, agreed. Mm. So the deal was... When everybody in the, the warehouse is done and it's clean, you go home. 20% uh, of the workforce, by the way, rejected it. And they had a meeting in the parking lot, the group of the whole 100%, and they told the 20%, look, if you don't like the agreement that we've just reached, one of two things is going to happen. You need to go to another department or we'll beat the shit out of you every day that you stop us from going home early. Wow. Now, you see, this took the problem of engagement out of the hands of management and put it into now a mm -hmm. self-directed work team. Uh, two months later, I showed up at the facility uh, two hours before the quit time. And when I walked in, everybody was gone. Warehouse was clean. You know why? When a guy finished his work load, he went and helped another guy finish his. Yeah. 
And at the end of the day, two hours was lopped off of their work time, but they still got paid. Who was left in the warehouse? The managers, because management wouldn't let them go home. This is a fantastic deal, right? Mm. Uh, a well, year it's ownership, later, they, though, isn't it? That oh, they it is. own their own destiny and their own story, if you like. Of they course, get self empowerment. Yeah. Right. You've been given. You've given them empowerment, the opportunity to do it. They choose to. Right. Mm. And therefore, they are engaged in doing a good job that meets specifications, reasonable expectations. And they did. A year later, the company negotiated the contract. The contract was due. And of course, what did they do? They upped the piece count, mm. which meant they now had to load more product than they had moving before. the goalposts. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, I, I, the outcome is, is I'm sure, obvious. Uh, nobody went home early. Right. Because the workforce immediately pissed off, said, fine, that's the way you play the game. Here's how we play the game. Yeah. You don't get your stuff delivered on time to the stores. <laughs> so, but isn't that, you see, unfortunately, that's American management's hmm. mindset about this. And that is absolutely abhorrent now to the workforce. Yeah. Well, it's a very industrial model, as you say. You absolutely. can imagine as well that, that looking at that and thinking, well, we can increase our returns on time here, increase the piece count. It's just the relentless push. It's a gravity, isn't it? That is, it is. the base of operations. Let's um, switch gears a little bit here, Paul, and talk about a bit of your backstory as well, that people may or may not know that you were a lawyer. I was. That, yeah, you can see maybe your combative nature as well. <laughs> Probably. Out. It's yeah. all training. Uh, as my wife would say, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but you can never not be a lawyer. Right. It's in the blood. You're a proper courtroom <laughs> lawyer as well. Absolutely. That, we were chatting before this, and what I, when we were chatting about your um, training, in courtroom lawyer, you know, being the, the young guy coming into court and you were equally as combative as you are now, as you were in court fighting for somebody that when you were in that situation, you went in as sort of young, maybe idealistic courtroom lawyer and presenting all the data and all the facts. And you, you told me that in those early days, no matter how enthusiastic and passionate you were about it, you weren't getting the results. You know, with these cases and with these, you, you would have juries in these courtrooms as well. So, absolutely, you know, and you know, it's proper setup. And what what was going on there? Because you you were, you know, you were studying, learning all the the data, the facts, and presenting it with passion. But something was missing. What was going on? Well, you're you're absolutely correct about uh, about the the level of combativeness is I've developed it over my career, and. And I knew from the time I started law school that I was going to be a trial lawyer and I was going to try cases in front of juries in the federal court level. Uh, I wanted to be at the highest level possible. And, uh, and I trained myself by, uh, by watching some people try cases. And so being a brash young guy, when I graduated law school, I started my own practice. I had a couple of invitations to join firms. And I tell people, I don't like working for others. It's, it's never been wow. something. It's quite unique, though, isn't it, to start your is. own practice? Yep. That's how, that's, that's how, uh, how much hubris I had. Okay. That, that, that I, I was ready to go out and, and, I, and I got a client. How I old were you when you started time. your own practice? Oh, my God. Uh, let's see. I graduated, graduated law school. I guess it was 23. 
23. 23, yeah. And uh, and I was I was ready. I, you know, I, I just was <laughs> ready to mind, do that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes, thank you. It was my old de- delusion that I had fostered, and and uh, and it had grown. And and so here I go, and I found clients. Uh, you know, and and probably because my fee was so low. Mm-hmm. But uh, but but I went to uh, and the first two trials uh, before a jury, I was absolutely positively sure that I was going to win. And in both instances, the jury ruled against me. And after the second one, I, I have to admit, even my pride had taken a hit there. Uh, my clients were not happy. Uh, they, they still paid. But but uh, I, so as I was gathering up my papers after the jury had given the verdict in the second coast, uh, a, uh, a lawyer who'd been practicing for easily 30 years in Chicago. And, and by the way, Chicago is a very tough town to, to mm. practice law in. Uh, you know, it's very much blue collar. And, and uh, anyway, he had, he uh, he was well known. And uh, he came up to the uh, the desk as I put my papers in my briefcase. And he said, you know, he said, you, you do a pretty good job, but you don't you're not going to win any cases. And I was like, huh, all right, uh, you're sitting there. I, I'm going to give you respect because you obviously have won a lot of cases. And I said, okay, I hear what you're saying. He said, hey, if you buy me a steak dinner, I'll tell you what you're doing wrong. Well, I'd already shelled out for three and a half years of law school. I figured, what's a steak dinner going to cost yeah. me? <laughs> so we go out. And of course, it wasn't the steak dinner that was expensive. It was the bottle of scotch you drank. <laughs> but, but regardless, he said, uh, let me tell you that you're really good at putting the facts together into a very coherent, cohesive story. He said, but that's the problem. It's not a story. All you're doing is presenting the facts. He said, if you can't learn how to take those facts and merge them together into a narrative that absolutely draws the jury into the story Mm. and makes them want to know about you and your client, because remember, you're representing your client, but you're the face that they see because you'll never put your client on the on the witness stand if you know what's good for you. So you're the one that they're going to see. They have to like you. And. And they have to hear the story, be intrigued by the story, and believe the story. Mm. So until you learn to develop, create that story, and deliver it, deliver it with the passion that it is true. And at that point, you will be able to convince the jury, because that's what practicing law is. We all think it's about a presentation of facts, Mm. not. It's about convincing the jury that your presentation of facts is right. Because think about this. The other side has half the story. And so somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Your issue is not to present the facts, but but to develop the story and convince them that the story that you present is the truth. Hmm. By the way, when you're doing I never did criminal law, so it was always civil law. I just had to convince a majority of the jury. And uh, and he said, the first thing you have to do is convince one person mm. because every jury has to have one person who is your advocate, because when they go, when they leave the courtroom and go to deliberate, that one person has to believe you so strongly that they are going to advocate on your side, your position in deliberation. So in the courtroom, did you actually, I know you wouldn't be able to approach the jury, but would you be speaking to that person sitting in the jury's 
bench. You would like pick them out and say, okay, that's my advocate. I'm going to work with him or her. Did that how it, is that how it worked? Well, the, the beginning of the process of jury selection called void dire to, to find the truth. And every juror is required, a potential juror out of a jury pool, which is randomly selected, takes the stand and you get to ask them questions. And you so ha- you have so many strikes that you can say, that's, that's someone I do not want on my jury, mm. for, as they answered the question. So I would discover my advocate in void dire. I would go... And, and it comes in a variety of ways. Once you practice for a while, you can start to get more mm. of an emotional feel. I would because I wanted to see how they would react to certain questions that I asked, but also what the other side asked. Uh, but but I, I got to, I would pick my advocate during void year. Now it could change because clearly, as you present your case, and specifically when the other person presents their case, you're watching the impact they have on your advocate. And if you see that you're starting to lose that person, you either are able to get them back or you find somebody else. Mm. But I've also I found that if I had an advocate, then I, I would be able. And by the way, hopefully you're presenting a case that doesn't just impress one person. You're actually looking for seven. So so I would get that. And once I saw the advocate was reacting well to what I was saying, I would start to pick out the number of jurors that I needed. Mm. And I would I, that was that was my narrative. Wow. Uh, for instance, if there was uh, women, women were always a favorite, uh, a favorite advocate for me because I was usually able to connect it to family. I've got a very strong family feeling and I would try to do that. That would be part of my narrative. If I had mm. someone who had a family, I wanted them to know about the family. I wanted them to know that he was a good father, even though he was a thief. Mm. <laughs> so, so that's the concept. And, uh, anybody who's a good trial, trial lawyer has to do it this way. We don't see that, we, or we don't no. appreciate that, do we? That we no. think that it's all done on fact. And no. truth and fact are not the same things. I mean, you know, I think we need to establish that telling stories is not a somehow spinning of the truth. It's without story, we don't know the truth. It's a way of packaging the truth so people can absorb it and understand it in something's meaningful. And even if you see that, I don't know if it happens in the cases that you worked on, but I'm only going to be a Netflix observer of trial um, courtrooms. And you, you see, for example, that at the beginning of the trial, the lawyer, the uh, prosecution or the defense will present a case. They present, I don't know specifically if it's the opening statement, which is really, this is how it's almost like the opening chapter of a book. This is how we're going to interpret everything that comes afterwards, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the reason for the murder. This is the reason why he was motivated to do it. You know, jealousy, spurned lover. And when people hear all these things, immediately it creates a narrative, which, oh yeah, I understand this. I know where this goes, the spurned lover story. And I've seen this before and heard it. And therefore everything that follows fits into the narrative of familiarity. And that's extremely powerful in terms of framing all the data that gets presented afterwards. Is that something that you would, as a lawyer, would work on this sort of opening statements? How, how important are these in cases? Oh, extraordinarily. Uh, you're, you're spot on with how you describe it. It, it is, you see, you, you, not only, you not only tell the jury, but you, you want, my contention was, the jury doesn't get to know everything I know in opening statement. 
I want them to want to hear more. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give them enough. In most presentations, I believe that you start off and you have a hook. Something has to draw the attention of the jury in. Now, juries are are primed, at least on the first day, because first half of them don't want to be there, by the way. Uh, so, so I need to entertain. Otherwise, they're going to go away. And by the way, every once mm. in a while, I would have jurors that would fall asleep. Yeah. And and my client would be absolutely apoplectic, by the way. They would be like, you've got to tell the judge. I said, well, the first thing is you don't want to tell the judge to wake that person up. And then they find out that you've told the judge to wake him up. <laughs> yeah. you must not do you just that. just lost the guy there. <laughs> exactly. Second, I would rather they sleep through some of this so that I can talk to them at the end. Because at the end, when you're doing the wrap-up, the close, hmm. That's when you can really, really get into the act Mm. and you can really entertain and you can become more passionate and you can get louder. And nobody sleeps in one of my closings. Never. (laughs) It was was forbidden. I'm amazed that you describe it as, you know, I know it it is a form of entertainment, but, you know, when we think of this process, we think of it as, you know, extremely factual and objective. Nope. And it, it... it's not how human beings are. I mean, we think, you know, in the sort of the Star Trek analogy, it's Spock as opposed to Captain Kirk. But, you know, we've got to remember that Captain James Kirk was the actual leader. And Spock That's was correct. just the, an advisor. He would never be able to lead, right? That was no. the point. He, he was the emotional one, Kirk, and he was the one who made sometimes risky statements and decisions. But he was the one that led us, right? And that was the important part is that that's how these things work. And I want to sort of bring this into the context of business and employee engagement, bringing this back is because there's so many powerful lessons that we could draw from the courtroom and what we've talked about setting out with employee engagement and leadership that, you know, we talked about radical transparency, radical candor, that leaders aren't aware of what's going on and it really comes down to communication and how we lead and how we communicate and so much of it is done via powerpoint and memos and you know you could see for example enron and that's a great example that you know they had it all written up on their wall in their plush office about how they were going to be authentic and Mm -hmm. so on but were anything but right so what, what could we learn from the courtroom and being a trial lawyer, bringing that into business now in terms of, especially with this challenge of communication? Well, I think that every leader needs to start off recognizing that anything they're told has been filtered. It's been filtered by every layer of leadership under them. They don't see the actual fact. What they do is they hear someone's interpretation of the fact, usually with a story. And the reality is for most human beings, including leaders, is that we are going to make an emotional decision and support that decision with facts. Mm. So that's how I always approach it. I think that if, if you're emotionally engaged, then I can tell you enough information that is real for you to support a position. And I believe that that's the way, and, and this is the way that I approach most uh, coaching uh, clients, is that is that they often, first, the coaching clients uh, at the very beginning are very much like a, like a, a, uh, a law client mm. who like them. 
because they believe if you like them, you will do a better job representing them, which mm. has absolutely nothing to do with how any lawyer represents their client. Believe me, uh, that liking you is not the deal. Uh, it, being able to defend you or represent you is the deal. And that means that you've got to cut through the bullshit. And most, most leaders are surrounded by a cocoon of bullshit. And someone has to actually cut through that and show them the truth. Now, now the truth as I see it is different than anyone who works internally. I would never be an employee for a client that was a coach. Because once I become an employee, my perspective changes and their perspective mm. of me change. Because my job, and, and I've got the tagline, the no BS workplace performance coach, is to tell you the truth as I see it. Now, I will back up what I tell you with information that you can check, but I'm not going to filter it for you. And unfortunately, most leaders don't see the unfiltered truth. Mm. They get something else. That's why decision-making is is 50% wrong at all times. Hmm. Uh, I don't care how good you are. You're 50% of the decisions you make because they're not based on reality, but on what you've been told is reality will have to be wrong inherently. Hmm. Uh, having someone as an independent third party who is in touch with the truth and is able to tell you it, show you it, and support that position is the value of coaching to me. Mm. And, and clearly, if you're not doing that as a coach, I, I think that you're not doing your job. And by the way, uh, the whole concept of telling people the truth is to then say to them, not only do you need to know the truth about your managerial team or the processes, you also need to know the truth about yourself because you are setting the tone, you are the example, and if things are not going well, at some point, this is you and your responsibility. And by the way, most leaders have blind spots. Mm. Oh, uh, one oh of my, sure, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first, first, you're told you're good. You're told you're great. Uh, the, better, the better the company, the, the more you are special. Mm. Uh, and, and the hardest person for me to coach is someone who's successful. Mm. The first thing they say is, well, you want me to do things differently uh, to change. And I say, yeah. And they say, well, why would I do that? I'm successful. Ah, but you're not reaching your potential. Now, if you're not interested in reaching your potential, you're right. Leave everything the way it is and you'll do okay. Until mm. somebody exploits your blind spot and takes you and your organization down. Because that's what competitors look for. They look for the blind spot. Uh, nobody wants to go head on, by the way. Uh, the concept of we're knights in shining armor going to get on the field of combat and uh, and and play horsey. Uh, that's not no, how competition. No, no they're going to be around the back door through the. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And we're looking, and we're looking, and you know who's going to tell me your blind spot? One of your closest associates mm. who was unhappy for a variety of reasons and decided they're going to change sides, and they're going to tell me the secrets that you think no one else knows. Hmm. And once I know your blind spot, then my strategy changes dramatically because hmm. I'm taking advantage of that blind spot. So my job is to make sure that you know what your blind spots are and take the uh, take the necessary action so they are not fatal. Hmm. That requires you change and you improve. Yeah, I wonder if leaders are ready for that because it must be you can have a performance coach come in and tell you 
Paul, you're great. We can get you up to these levels, achieve all these goals, performance, enhancement, etc. We could do all that stuff and tell you how good you are. And then you can have another version where you come in and Paul, look, I've been talking to the people around you and, you know, I've been talking to the people on the third shift, you know, the ones that the 60% of your workforce that are out of sight, that are not in the office. And now obviously with the pandemic, a lot of them are only contacted through Zoom. I've been talking to these people and this is the reality. And are you sitting down? Let's go through it. That's a yep. tough conversation to have. Absolutely. I imagine that's that people I, feel very vulnerable when you go through that with them. Well, first, yes. And you have to have, you have to have a, a coach. I believe the coaching requires first an extraordinarily late, uh, amount of trust. You know, and I tell people I've got a very simple definition of trust. Do what you're supposed to do and do what you say you're going to do. And when I come in and we start a coaching relationship, I tell you exactly who I am and what I intend to do to help you. Now, I am a, uh, I'm an acquired taste because you will hear what you don't want to hear from me if, in fact, I find it. And the first way that, that we do this is because you, look, you can look at me and go, listen, you don't know anything about me except what you figured out by looking at the uh, website. Mm. Uh, and so why would I listen to you? Well, because I am going to, uh, to do something that's going to convince you that you do need help. You need to change. You need to get better. And that is we're going to do a 360-degree review immediately of the people who report to you. And we're going to do it anonymously because as much as you say, we, you, you want radical transparency. Yeah, yeah. We don't want the Netflix guys. I, yeah, that's right. I don't believe you. I'm sorry. And if that offends you, you need to fire me now. But because I, I find that most people react defensively to uh, being told the truth. And mm. if I want the truth about you and how you are as a leader, I don't know it. You're not my leader. But I'm going to go to the people that you lead. And I'm going, to, I'm going to either have focus groups with them, I'm going to do 360-degree reviews. And based upon that, I'm going to gather the facts as they see it and come back to you with that information so that you and I can have a conversation about these blind spots. Because I guarantee you, the information you're going to get back is going to be different than the information you think mm. is true. And we started that way. And uh, people are shocked. Most leaders are absolutely shocked when they get the results of a 360. Well, what shocks them typically? What, what are the uh, typical things that leaders, like you say, the, the dissonance between what they think is reality and what is going on? Well, first, every leader that I know believes that they're fantastic as communicators. Right. Yeah. And what we find out is people don't have telepathy. You see, as most of the leaders believe that people are, have telepathy because they should be able to read their minds. And the reality is we don't have telepathy yet. And guess what? This is the weakest point for most leaders. Their communication process is so distorted, so garbled, so just... What do you mean by distorted? Oh, it, it is. At first, they believe that, that the message that they're sending is the message wow. that you're hearing. And it's not. Uh, you, you think that you're giving out a fantastic message. Second, the, the message you're giving is probably incongruous when you look at the actions you take. 
I give you a good one. Uh, one of the CEOs of a, of a $500 million company uh, set out and with an outside firm developed a wellness program. And it was a good looking wellness program. And so they have an annual convention. 400 of the, uh, of the nationwide leaders come in, 400 of them, and to the convention. And they're introduced to the wellness program. And it has all to do about the fact that we know that you need to, to treat yourself better. You mm. need to eat better, sleep up. And of course, <laughs> it comes time for the lunch. And the lunch is nothing but fried food, gravies, rich salad dressings, and a dessert table to die for. And as I step out, right, because I'm there, I'm listening, and as I step out, I look around and I go, does anybody believe there's a wellness program here? And I look at the guy coming out, the leader, and he is beaming. And he's so happy with his presentation. And he's going to go fill up his plate. And did. I mean, I, and I, I sat out beside at the table. And of course, what do I have? I've got a salad in a bowl because I'm going to make a point. Yeah. I said, this is, this is the wellness program menu. That's the liar's program menu. And he, you know, at that point, it opened, it truly opened his eyes. I mean, he looked at his plate and he looked at my salad bowl and he suddenly realized that everybody in the room's thinking, what a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Right. But everybody, we should eat up. So, so that's what I mean, Graham. It, it is, it, we believe we're delivering a coherent, uh, conclusive message and we believe it, except for the fact that the way we deliver it, the way it's interpreted, it's not seen that way. Yeah, it's amazing. It's been really enlightening, Paul. I really enjoyed this. It's I, I feel emotionally charged as well because there's so many feelings this brings up. There's feelings of, you know, fear and vulnerability and, you know, joy as well if you can connect with people and it works that you can actually create that kind of engagement with a team. There's nothing like it. We have a team that works together positively and you know productively. And yet at the same time, all these frustrations that go into it, and there's a lot of baked in emotions into these conversations. And these are not easy conversations to have. And that's why I suppose you need somebody who's pugnacious really to stick with it, who's not afraid of a, a bit of a fisticuffs in the, the courtroom <laughs> and in the boardroom as well, emotionally. Yes. You know, having these conversations and these are difficult times for a lot of people. So we need to talk about these things and not, with kid gloves, right? We need to get to the point. No BS. So, Paul Glover, everybody, where do we find out more about you? Uh, PaulGloverCoaching.com. I wish it was more original, but it's no. certainly to the point. Uh, so, no. And if anyone wants to email, it's Paul at PaulGlover.com. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.